Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Kate Campbell, it's always a pleasure to have you with me on the Australian Finance Podcast. How are you going? I am very good, Owen, and it's good to be back talking about everyone's favorite Australian topic. Yes, which is property. So whether you're um, a a new buyer of property, whether you're an investor, whether you're a homeowner, um, just looking and thinking about interest rates and all these types of things, this is the episode for you. And we're we're bringing to you two experts. So Kate and I are going to take a bit of a backward step here and um, just watch on as as these two experts um, just riff on property. We've asked them to bring five uh, tips to the show today. So um, we're joined by Chris Bates from Wealthful. Chris, how are you going, mate? Awesome to be here, Owen and Kate. Good to yep. see you both. Likewise. Um, listeners, you will remember Chris because he's done the um, property course with us. He's also been on the show quite a few times, has his own podcast that he runs and a business, mortgage broker from Sydney. Uh, look him up. And we're joined by Emily Wallace. Emily, welcome to the show. Your first time with us. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself. It is indeed. Thanks for having me on board. Uh, so I'm a Melbourne-based uh, buyer's advocate, helping first and family home buyers into the market. Love all things property, a bit obsessed with it. And when I'm not buying property, I'm scrolling other properties on Airbnb. <laughs> yep. It's one of those things where people just love to do it. Domain and uh, realestate.com.au, two of the most popular websites in Australia. Um, we have this affinity um, across the country. So wonderful. Okay. If you want to learn more about um, what Emily or what Chris do, you can find all the links in the show notes. So those will be there for you and feel free to jump into the Facebook community and have a chat there. Um, Kate, what are we thinking? Maybe we'll go, Emily goes, Chris goes type thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's a little bit more interesting for me today than our property episodes in the past, because I'm actually contemplating purchasing a property this year. Although I was thinking the other day that I wish there was a service I could just magically say, can you just make a property appear and I will just pay the money and uh, you can do all the paperwork and everything. But I do believe uh, you do have to do a little bit of work, even if you use uh, services like Emily and Chris, and you do need to educate yourself a little bit. And so I'm looking forward to today's episode. Yes. Um, Why don't we go ladies first? So Emily, um, what's your, your number one tip for people that are looking at the property market in 2022? Definitely. So one of the biggest things we come up against is obviously the barrier to entry into the market being saving a deposit. So one of my tips would be uh, to understand the guarantor loan options. If it's suitable for you, obviously a broker would be able to talk through in more extent as to the suitability and options with that. But a lot of people, I'm often baffled by how many people don't understand a guarantor loan and how it actually can be beneficial to fast tracking their property journey. So if you're thinking the clock's ticking in 2022 to get into the market, I would strongly encourage you to educate yourself um, and understand what a guarantor loan can can assist you with. Yeah, sure. I think Chris, being a mortgage broker, might be able to lend... Um... <laughs> A bit of advice here or a bit of wisdom. Uh, so, Chris, what is it? Uh... Yeah, thanks. That's actually what I should put that as one of my tips, actually. <laughs> um, I'd say it's guarantor loan and lender's mortgage insurance. I, mm. I'd say they're both tools that you should consider if you're a first home buyer. Sometimes people think I've got to have a 20% deposit and they don't understand how LMI works and how it gets more expensive as a percentage what you borrow and what it even is. Some people think it's a flat fee and or an annual fee, et cetera. So get understanding of LMI, how it works. To give you a little quick tip, probably around an 88% loan or a 90% loan is what you should really 
aim for as a minimum, so a 10 or 12% deposit. But if you're talking Melbourne or Sydney or Brisbane, um, even after the last 12 months, you're talking a lot of deposit when you add also stamp duty on top. So you could be talking 15 or 17% times the purchase price. A lot of money, right? 150, 200 grand sort of thing. So Emily's absolutely right. I mean, not everyone has got the benefit of having usually parents that are in a financial position to um, give you a guarantor. You know, they may not own a property or maybe they've got a house and it's got a lot of debt on it or, um, you know, maybe they have. Maybe they've got a home. They're not looking to sell or downsize. Um, you haven't got a, you know, a family of 10 kids. You've only got one brother or sister and um, that can be an issue when multiple kids want to use it at the same time and, you know, family Christmas party um, antics. So just be, there's, there's things that we can really understand guarantors. If, if, it, if your parents are in the position to do it um, and it's not going to affect them and your brothers and sisters are okay with it, then it can be a huge benefit for you because basically you don't need a deposit. Um, you'd still want to use your money in offset accounts and things like that, but you don't need to find this deposit. You don't need to pay a big lender's mortgage insurance. And it doesn't really cost your parents anything ongoing. You pay all the mortgage um, and you can sort of, the biggest thing and mistake people make with a guarantor though is they buy a poor quality asset. So they go to mum and dad, I'm going to use your equity in your place to protect um, myself. And so I don't need to pay lender's mortgage insurance. And then they go buy an off the plan apartment or they go and buy an investment property in a regional town and just hope for the best. Um, so you've got to buy a quality asset um, and you've got to think through how to best protect your family. Big caveat though, I don't want to go on about this forever, but big caveat with guarantor loans is you've got to take a personal responsibility that your parents are doing you a favor and you've got to try to get rid of it. And so I would say, you know, within three to five years, you've got to come to them with a plan prior to asking, like, this is how it works. This is the type of quality property I'm going to get. And this is how I'm going to get rid of it. Do that research first before you have a conversation with your parents about it, because that's what they really care about is, is you taking action once they help you. Chris, does yeah. it have to be your parents or can Owen guarantee my home loan? Absolutely. <laughs> if you've got an older brother or uh, sister and or family or friends or could do it, I would say that 99% of the time it's the, the parents because um, a lot of the brothers and sisters either want to use that equity for themselves because they want to upgrade or have investments, et cetera. So parents are usually the ones who do it. Yeah. And that's, I think that's a really good point you make there about making sure you go to your, your parents, assuming it's your parents, um, prepared because they want, will want to know that you have the confidence that you know what it is, you know how it's going to work and how they're going to get off it. Because they might, you know, typically parents might want to retire in five years and they might want to liquidate their home or downsize. And they, that's the, you know, they've secured against their property too. So um, yeah, great, great point there. Um, so what was your number one then, Chris? That was um, a great intro from Emily. What would be your number one tip? Look, I would say right now it's, you know, we've had a big boom in 2021, 2022. Um, there's lots of fear around rising interest rates um, and the media are going to start playing on this um, a lot. You know, you've already seen all the banks come out with big forecasts on property price falls. You've had, you know, respected commentators like Chris Joy call for four uh, big falls. Um, and so there's a bit of a, a media spin has gone from boom to bust. Um, and you just got to be really careful that um, the type of property that you're buying and understanding that it's micro markets. And even though the Australian property market probably does have a lot of headwinds coming up with higher interest rates, that doesn't mean that the type of property that you want and the right type of property for you longer term is going to fall in value. And what you know downturns have shown us in the past, like 2018, um, you know, the 2003, et cetera, is it's actually harder to buy quality assets and good property when markets go down because good property to people don't sell um, and they really, so liquidity drives up. So don't fall for this big media 
storm that all properties are going to fall by 15, 20% next year um, because it actually probably won't happen. Um, you'll find good properties hold their value and poorer properties, things that are compromised will lose a lot more value. And that's if that even happens at all. You could find mm. there's more stimulus and things don't even happen like that. So be careful with the media storm talking about the big market and focus on your micro market and the type of property you want um, and understanding the quality of that. I remember during COVID, Chris, um, CBA, I don't know if the media just took this out of context, but the CBA had a forecast of 32% fall in house prices. And they basically went exactly in the opposite direction over the next 12 months. So um, be very careful with that. Um, Kate, Emily's got a tip and I reckon it would help you out right now. Uh, just, you know, speaking on your behalf. Uh, Emily, what's number, number two for you? So uh, we're looking at renting before you buy as a, as a tip to be familiar with a new area. So it's not uncommon that um, you've grown up in a certain area, you've, you've fled the nest from mum and dad, um, or you've you know, gone and rented somewhere with a friend, but now it's time to buy and looking at your budget and what that affords you might be in an area that you've never lived in before. So one of the biggest tips would be renting in the area you intend to purchase in before committing to a purchase. And this largely comes off the back of 2020 and 2021 when so many people made a sea change to an area that they maybe visited for a weekend um, at mm. best. And interestingly enough, I think this is a trend to uh, keep an eye out for, very much a side note here, but I suspect that there will be people who haven't adapted to those areas as well as they thought they would because they were not informed or they hadn't lived there before and we start seeing them flock back from the regions into the city so renting before you buy in an area is crucial because you've got a well-rounded opinion of the area um, also facebook groups of areas are really good i often stalk um, community facebook groups to get intel on you know what's happening in certain streets of a suburb um, but but, you know, really, ultimately, if you could afford to rent even a six-month lease just to get a feel while you're, while you're looking, I think that would be a real advantage to you in making a very informed decision of your new suburb. Mm. Got to make sure there's good coffee shops nearby. Totally. Number one priority. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. It's actually a really good point. tip there, Emily. It is, it I, is. <laughs> I would say, um, you know, because we obviously encourage that as well. If you're renting and you're thinking about moving to a new suburb, and your, sometimes buyers think they're going to perfectly time their lease finishing with their home purchase and their settlement date, and it's all just going to miraculously happen. Um, the reality is what I would probably suggest is break your lease, move to that area ASAP, and when you're looking at this property, just be living in that area and rent something out and go through the move because I'd rather move to a rental and then move back to the city to another rental, then buy, move there and buy a property and then have to sell a property. And mm -hmm. so if you're already in that position where you're looking in areas where you not live uh, and you can break your lease, break your lease, take the cost on, get in there and start renting um, because it's, it's, you don't want to um, yeah, move to the area and then have to sell. Stamp duty, selling costs, it might not work very well, et cetera. Yeah. There you go, Kate. When you move to London, you can go and rent first and then, <laughs> and then you can oh, buy. Oh, gosh. I don't know if buying in London is possible in one's lifetime anymore, but Chris, what's your second tip? 
Look, I think you definitely need to think long-term. I think there's, you know, long-term in terms of um, switching off from the media storm, obviously, um, but also thinking, you know, what's, how's your situation going to change long-term? You know, a lot of uh, younger people want to live for the moment maybe um, and don't want to say what I'm going to be doing in five years, but I do think forward planning is essential with property decisions. Look, you know, what's the likelihood of you going to live in that city longer term? What's going to happen if you meet someone? Are you going to want a family? Um, and see if you can incorporate what you want from a long-term lifestyle point of view and making sure it's a great investment um, rather than what my needs are today. Even today, we had a client trying to buy a one-bedroom apartment in the in a east of Sydney. She can't afford a two-bed, um, you know, just by potentially taking a little bit more debt, not too much more, and it gives her that scope. You know, if she does meet someone um, and she does want a kid in a few years' time, then she's got a perfect place for that rather than a tiny little one-bed that she'd outgrow. So think long-term with all your decisions and, you're thinking through, if I make this move, how am I then going to make that next move? If I, if I buy this investment property, how is that going to stop me upgrading my house? Or how is that going to stop my renovation? So you've always got to be thinking um, long-term and try to switch off from the, you know, trying to play the market and, and et cetera like that. Because quality assets, um, unfortunately, are even harder to buy in down markets, as I said before. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a really good point, Chris. Um, Emily, I had a friend this morning who was talking to me about buying a house um, and he was saying in the suburb that he was looking in, he's been looking for about a year now. And he was saying that some of the houses in his area may have fallen for $50,000, slightly lower quality, but maybe $50,000 less than what he thought he would be purchasing, you know, six, six months ago. So, um, and I was, my point was basically, Hey, well, maybe there's a reason for them selling. Um, I, this is relating to your third point. Um, I'd love to for you to just dive into this. Uh, in terms of if something's cheaper in the market or appearing. Yeah, yeah. yeah and understanding sure. why they're selling. Yeah. So I guess, um, well, one of my key tips is around vendor motivation and um, that can play into price. But what we're experiencing, and I think this is fair to say across the board, is a domino effect of stock holding. So what that means is a lot of people are hesitant to sell their property because they've got nowhere to go right? We've got a stock shortage across the board and therefore um, a vendor might not want to sell until they've found something. So when we're talking about vendor motivation, um, we need to understand, A, do they already have somewhere to go and they just need to get X amount? And that might be the case of your friend seeing something that is slightly below um, what they thought they'd need to pay and maybe the vendor just needs to get out. Or is the vendor motivation that we actually need to know our sale price, to know what we can go and buy? And along with that, we're going to put a preference on someone who places an offer with a 120 day settlement, for example. So it's interesting when people, it's probably an agent's pet peeve when they go, Oh, why is the vendor selling? You know, why are they selling? It actually doesn't really matter. What matters is what will, um, what will the vendor take as a preference when I put forward my offer or when I put forward my terms, that's a better question, a better quality question to be asking the agent um, to understand how you can make your offer most attractive to, to the vendor. You might even find that um, the vendor's got resistance because they don't want their property sold to a developer. They'd rather it go to a first home buyer. So putting a letter with your office explaining who you are and your intentions with the property, we've actually won properties for a lesser purchase price based off doing that very thing. So um, understanding mm -hmm. the vendor's motivation, not just, you know, why are they selling? It's a very basic question, a bit more of an um, understanding of, their motivation is um, a good thing to, to know as a buyer. 
Can I just ask one follow up with a, an yeah. example here? Let's say um, you come across a house that you like. It's a bit older. It's a bit tired, but you've come across the house and you you notice you know that's a bit run down, and you think, okay, I'm going to ask them why they're selling, and, it, and you find out it's a retiree. Um, they own the house and they're moving out. How would that inform someone? Like, how, how what would what would be going through your mind? Like, oh, so how do, how do I now take that information and then roll that into something? Definitely. So particularly in that situation, if they're um, they're downsizing from the family home, it's quite a sentimental property, a, eh? um, but also their journey to downsizing could be quite a long one. Um, so if I've got that information on hand, there's a couple of things I wanted to be um, across is. Um, a, when do they intend to move out, whether that might be prior to settlement? If it's run down, can we actually get access to get trades to quote things that we can start getting the process underway to fix it up? Um, B would be if they're a bit hesitant to move and they really don't have anywhere to go, would we maybe look at renting the property back to them for a period of time so they're not feeling as pressured to move hmm. on? Um whilst also trying to get access for those trades. That's the biggest thing is to get in there and do the quotes. Um, but certainly if it's been a family home, one that's been in the family for a long time and they're now downsizing, you often find it's a sentimental sale that's quite emotional. And so um, being aware of that as a buyer and being patient, but also um, if it's something you intend to sort of restore to its former glory, making that known um, to, to the seller. Yeah, it's probably a very different mindset of the seller if it's someone that's lived in it for 20 years versus someone who's rented it the whole time and never actually lived in it personally. So they different emotional attachment during that process. Very much so, yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. Chris, what's your number three tip, mate? Oh, awesome tip there, Emily. I think a lot of people think it's always down to price, but a lot of the time it is down to terms. Um, and the lease back is definitely something that, you know, in these markets, you know, are very appealing to a lot of sellers because they may need that money. They may need to sell the property. They put that money in the bank account. And now they're ready to go and they can rent a place for maybe six or 12 months, depending on what you make on the terms. So it's a really good tip. I say, uh, Emily actually stole my thunder. So thanks for that, Emily. Um, she <laughs> mentioned it was be, be careful with the regions. And I do think this is a, a bit of a danger zone for a lot of people. There's obviously a lot of hype around um, the regions and we've had lots of clients move to there's two types of regions the, the, the sister or brother of the, the capital city you know the ones that are commutable within an hour or two um, and people can do it on a weekly basis and then you've got the real pure regions that um, people aren't able to commute to the city um, both are a bit of a danger both of them have gone up a lot um, and they're driven by two things one people moving there from capital cities but b low interest rates um, so the internal um, demand has been pushed up because people are taking on more debt because rates are all time low, but also demands being pushed up by people moving there. Now, I do think that people are going to keep moving there. I do think like Emily, people are going to start moving back. But a lot of the affordability segment of the regions is driven by interest rates. And a lot of investors um, and people are playing in this space and prices have been pushed up a lot really fast. Um, and it wouldn't take much for higher interest rates to really take back a bit of that growth. Um, so if you are playing in the regional areas, you want to be playing in the aspirational part, which is where there's real scarcity, which is the, the more the, where the locals really would love to live and where the people doing well financially would love to live in those regions. And they're very small pockets of these regional towns. They're like a few streets or right near the water. Um, and that's the place people are going to continue to move from the capital city for because they're like, I left Sydney, but look what I got. You know, look what I got for my money. So the aspirational, the higher end of the regions, I'm a bit more confident on. But the affordability part, um, also because prices are higher, it's now less affordable. And so people are less likely to move to the regions. So it's got to be really careful with the regions. I think people are just 
um, hitting and hoping because they can't afford the capital city. Um, and you know, could very easily see you know, higher interest rates put pressure on them and then people come back to the city if the return to works aren't as favorable for their roles. Mm-hmm. And that's probably where that rent before you buy tip comes in because you might realize you really don't like the commute from Bendigo to Melbourne for your two days in the office a week. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's the thing, you know, if you can if you can rent in these regions first, that de-risks your personal sort of risk of going there and then having to come back and um, yeah, the financial cost of all that. Mm-hmm. I think we're up to, Kate, are we up to number four? We're getting through this list pretty quick. Yeah, I think so. Emily's fourth suggestion. Uh, So this one's a bit more of a philosophical one uh, around mindset because it's just so interesting, the psychology of um, not just the buyer themselves, but the people around them when they do go and purchase a property, particularly if maybe they're the first one in their friendship group to go and buy a property um, or maybe the first in their family. Like if you know you've got yourself and three siblings and you're the first one to go and make the move. It's interesting being an observer of this process and what I often find without even realizing it, sometimes the people closest to the buyer are deterring them from a purchase. You know, they're quite negative. They're quite picky and, you know, oh, but it's in your best interest. I'm trying to point out things that you need to know about, which I believe there is a degree of that and um, certainly a supporting role, you know, mum and dad or brother, sister, friend to come along. But I think you also need to be aware that this is a very big step for you to go and purchase a property is a milestone for anybody. And so when there is a milestone or a point of success, it can leave others around you feeling a little bit like they're not there yet, you know, and feeling a bit deflated. So I think the buying mindset is just to be aware of other people and who you actually involve in the buying process. I know there's some buyers that we've worked with who haven't even um, told anyone that they're looking to purchase because they just don't want to be influenced or have anyone um, in in the process be across what they're doing. They just want to be independent and have a professional next to them and just trust in that process. But just, I think if you are thinking of buying this year or or any year, really, just be careful of of who you involve in that process and how much weight you really do put on their opinions. Because at the end of the day, you're living in that property, not them. So you need to be happy with it and, and make sure it's the right one for you. Mm-hmm. Property is probably one of those things in Australia where everyone's got their own tips and advice on. So if you tell your friends and family, everyone's going to come flocking with their suggestions for you and they might not always be the right ones or the best ones for you. I can see Chris yeah, nodding his head as well. <laughs> yeah. oh, absolutely. This is one of my biggest um, pet hates, I guess you'd call it. Um, you know, family members getting involved and either creating even more anxiety and FOMO. You're not successful to you buy property so they can tell their friends and how successful their kids are. I think brothers and sisters, you know, putting pressure on their other brothers and sisters to, you know, follow them or colleagues or, or friends, et cetera, giving them tips. Um, some, you know, a lot of people act as financial advisors for people without any sort of knowledge on or real true knowledge on the, and what worked for them 10, 20 years ago, isn't going to necessarily work for you today. Um, and so you've got to be really careful. And also at the moment, you've got to be careful. They're all talking you out of it. You know, oh, probably be buying a property at the moment. That's just crazy. Prices are going to fall. And, um, you know, people talk you in and they also talk you out of making a good decision for yourself. So, um, yeah, I think you're right, Emily. We've had clients do that the same. And I actually think that's a good strategy is to not tell people who you aren't going to really listen to their opinion or you think is an informed opinion. Because once they say it, you can't then just be like, well, no, I'm still going to do it anyway. You know what I mean? It's because um, you might say, but I think that's the good move. If you get the right people around you, you just focus on what's right for you. And sometimes that's not buying. It's not always buying. We often tell clients to keep on saving 
You know what yeah. might maybe get a promotion with work, maybe actually, um, you know, swap jobs, uh, maybe, you know, wait for that clarity with that new partner, you know, are you guys going to make it, you know, do you guys want to, you know, wait three or four months and then, you know, go in together. Like there's lots of reasons why you might want to wait. Um, maybe you, you know, you're thinking about a job overseas, maybe that's going to change everything. Um, so it's not always a case of, um, you know, maybe you should take, get your money working more than it's in the bank, you know, focus on what's right for you um, and your future. Mm. Most mm. definitely. And just invite them around to the housewarming. That's all you need to do. If you don't want their opinion, just send them an invite and they can come to the party and they can be happy for you. Yeah. <laughs> Once it's all signed and done. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> all right. I think it's up to Chris's fourth tip. Yes, Look, I think this is a, um, it's probably around um, the risks after booms in prices that they do increase. The chance of fall increases, the chance of a gain um, decreases, right? And so we all know that how the markets have moved over the last, you know, 12, not just the last 12 months, even since, you know, um, mid-2019, really, um, after the election. So um, you've got to be careful right at the moment because people are getting more uh, picky, you know, buyers um, in terms of what they're willing to compromise on. And they're not got the FOMO they had in the market last year. So they're not willing to pay the same amount of money as they were last year in the height of the boom, just to get in for things that are compromised. Okay. So things that are on busy roads, things that are dark, got privacy issues, um, things that are noisy, things that are, you know, surrounded by other houses or could have development potential, et cetera. So things that are compromised are at high prices because of the FOMO in the market last year. And a real danger right now is to potentially look at being opportunist and say, oh, I could get this cheaper than it was last year and, and not focus on quality because as interest rates increase, there's two things that will happen. People's ability to take on more debt will increase, borrowing capacities fall. And secondly, their willingness to take on debt also decreases because they're going, I'm going to have to pay more for the mortgage. And so they're going to become even less, more picky and less um, desire to take on big debts for compromised assets. Whereas if a property ticks all the boxes, you know, it's on a great street, it's got great aspect, it's a great place to, you know, live long-term. A, there's very few of those because stocks are always really low, those properties. Uh, and B, people are like, well, I'm willing to not, I'm willing to take on this debt, even though interest rates are 3% or even though the interest rates are 4% because I need a family home and I want to live there long-term, et cetera. So you've got to stick to quality right now, just after booms, because if there is a tightening or a global credit crisis or something like that, the compromised properties get smashed. This is what we saw in the 2018 downturn is they might fall a lot more than the quality assets. So um, the other question we get is at the moment is, oh, I can't buy that because that's what went up a lot last year. Uh, so I'm not going to buy a quality asset. I'm going to, because they went up so much last year. Well, that's actually the definition of why you should be buying those assets because they're the things that will hold their value long-term because their quality and will actually go up the most. So don't go, I can't buy the quality because they're up too expensive. Actually, no, the, the solution isn't going buying a cheap, poor asset. The solution's getting a better quality asset, but maybe you have to shift suburbs now because prices went up. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a really, really good one. And I think it relates perfectly to uh, Emily's final point, the fifth and final point. Um, I'll hand it over to you, Emily, and then I'm sure we'll have a few mm. comments on this. Yeah, certainly. So um, the the fifth one is around if it seems cheap, there's probably a reason for it. Uh, and it's not so much just, oh, you know, it's on a main road, like, you know, you wouldn't buy on a main road or blanket ruling these things. It's more around 
understanding things on a macro level um, and also micro. So macro would be things such as council planning. Um, it would be any permits that have been issued within the street for construction. Uh, it would be larger scale planning that may impact that property. As Australia grows and population grows, there's a lot of areas that are now um, being targeted for um, new freeways or tunnels or, you know, infrastructure that will actually impact that property um, down the track. So I think understanding that element and then on a micro level, the property itself, you know, is it structurally sound? Is it fundamentally functional? Um, are there aspects that would be better in another suburb if you spent the same amount of money for, you know, a different property? Um, but probably the biggest one around, if it's too cheap, it probably is, is the notion of underquoting. Um, now, I know every state has different laws and rules around how they stipulate uh, the indicative price of a property, but certainly in Victoria, uh, you know, the quote ranges are very transparent. Often when you look at them, or certainly from my point of view, I can look at them and go, that's an underquote. And the reason you would know that is if you're in um, the market constantly and have seen comparable properties and you've done your research. So if you're a buyer out there this year and you're wondering like, is that too cheap for a reason or is it an underquote? I would first and foremost, do your research on comparable sales in the area that have sold in the last three months to see if the numbers stack up on a land accommodation and location perspective. If it looks like it's drastically cheaper than everything else, then I would go into investigating a little bit more as to why that that might be the case. And just be frank with the agent, you know, why is it quoted this way? I've, I, you know, saw property XYZ sold three weeks ago, you know, 200,000 more than this, and it's a similar property. Why is that? don't necessarily trust everything they say, but certainly query them if you've got evidence to suggest that it is lightly quoted. Mm. I can see the benefit of doing that research and asking those questions because if you just you keep looking at the quote and then the properties keep selling for much more than the quote, I feel like that would be really disheartening to see throughout your property very, buying journey. Yeah, a very common, um, a very common one, the feeling of being disheartened through the process. So that's also being around realistic, you know, which is a good exercise to do regardless of a particular property is to um, do your research as to what you can actually afford because indicative selling price versus actual sale price are two very, very different figures. Hmm. So yeah. on, on your real estate app, would you just go through like recent sales rather than things yeah. for sale? Yeah, correct. So you just go to the sold tab um, on realestate.com or domain and um, just sort it in sold by date because sometimes they do by relevance, which is actually you can blow out to three years. Um, yeah, most recently sold and scroll through them and have a look at the floor plans, the condition and the actual location. Ideally, no more than a 1K radius of the property or area in question for you um, and start to ascertain, you know, is this actually achievable for me? Mm, that's a good strategy. Um uh, Chris, we've got number five from you, mate, uh, to round out our, our 10 for today. What have you got for us? So I think this is, um, you know, when times of uncertainty, this is when buffers come in. And so what you really need to do is focusing on how you're structuring everything in your life, you know, insurance, um, all different things, but around sort of your property decisions, the buffers really is buying quality, but also structuring your loans the right way. So, you know, understanding your guarantor loans, which we spoke about, understanding how LMI can actually give you a buffer. 
Um, and, you know, yes, there's the cost for it, but you get the benefit of a buffer. Um, making sure that, you know, you're building money in offset accounts, not just paying down your loans. Um, maybe you're using interest only if you've got investment properties, you know, you've got to really focus on extending your loan term to 30 years, you know, rather than 25 years will reduce your repayments and give you a bigger buffer. Um, look at saving hard, you know, to give you those. So it's just all about really focusing on if something happens to my financial situation, um, I'm going to be better protected. And so I do think it's a time to, to be putting those in place now. Then if, for example, there is something going on in the world um, and you, sometimes too late, you know, you can't refinance, you lose your job or property prices do fall for your property and you can't refinance or etc. So buffers are so important is once, especially after your first property, because what happens is people go from feeling very cash rich, um, you know, they've worked hard, they've got that savings there, and then they go to sometimes very little in the savings account after. And that is what I call the danger zone. Mm -hmm. And that is absolutely not a time to go out partying in your new place. Maybe, um, yeah, soft drinks at the house party, <laughs> might not even have a house party. I never said that before, so it didn't sound very good. But um, you know, I mean, keep it, you know, quite simple in that first six to 12 months after you purchase your place, get that buffer up, you know, and then relax. If you buy a building and a roof needs repair, um, things like that can really stress you out if you haven't got that buffer. Um, even in apartment blocks, you know, you can get strata levies increase and all sorts of things. So um, buffers are so important. I spend a lot of my time trying to educate people on how to build them and don't be afraid to use them. That's what they're for. Um, is to protect you in downturns. A lot of people think, oh, I can't do that. I'm just going to be stressing about it. Well, no, that gets you through that moment. That's what it was for. So build buffers. Chris, can I just follow up with one um, point, which I know it would be like remiss of me if I didn't ask it, which is the people that are coming to you now, like existing clients for Wealthful, are you recommending that they lock in rates or um, like are they still like are they getting fixed rates through you or what, are the, what, what is your current kind of feel of things? So is a bit of a pendulum that you, you know, sometimes it's just stay variable. The fixed rates are so unattractive. Let's just go variable. And a lot of the time, that's where the starting point is, you know, over longer term, it's proven that variable rates will beat fixed rates. Over the last three years, probably, um, you know, fixed rates have just been so attractive compared to the variable rate because they've been under the variable rate and, you know, sub 2%. At the moment, fixed rates have jumped so much um, and they're continuing to jump every day almost. Um, we get a new bank saying they're increasing fixed rates. At the moment, there's still a few banks where you can still get great two years and three year fixed rates, but it's a few, not most. Um, and, you know, you can get great variable rates in low 2%. And so at the moment, it really depends on your situation, your buffers um, and how protected you need to be by, because sometimes there's a cost of potentially going fixed that if variable rates don't rise as much as society thinks, and society has been wrong for over a decade, to be honest. Um, and so if variable rates stay low for the next three or four years, which is a chance, um, and uh, you could have fixed at a higher rate and paid a higher cost. And so sometimes we, you should never always fix all your loan as well. You don't have to have 100% fixed or 100% variable. You always split it. So you may go 50% fixed, 50% variable or 70% fixed, 30% variable. So a lot of people don't understand that as well. Yeah, it's also a really good point with um, offset accounts and the, and the like. So um, yeah, it's a great conversation to have with your mortgage broker if you haven't already in, in 2022 or late 2021. Just give them a call and, and see what they say. Um, Emily, I might just ask one more question for you. Um, where where have you been buying houses recently? Like what, what for listeners sake, where are you like, where's your bread and butter suburbs or areas for clients? Yeah. 
For sure. So in Melbourne, we um, are down the Bayside Corridor, so pretty much Port Melbourne all the way down to about Mordialic. And then in the inner southeast pocket, we have a lot of young professionals who commute to the city for work. Uh, and then uh, a quadrant sort of out in the, the north, so Northcote to Reservoir um, oh, yeah. and then out towards the Glenroy angle as well. So it is a fair bit of ground uh, hmm. when you think about it, but the team and I, um, you know, we love working with the first home buyer market and that's where a lot of those first homes do fall um, in those sort of price brackets. So, um, yeah, we spend a lot of time on the road, but we certainly enjoy it. Yeah, yeah, wonderful. Um, and by the way, we've got all the links in the show notes. So if anyone wants to follow up with Emily or Chris, please do so. Kate, you, this is a revelation. You'd sound like you're going to buy a house in 2022. Um, have you got any questions for Emily or Chris before, before we let them go? Because this is your time. This is your time. I guess just how much work should you probably put in beforehand? I kind of like, when should I start? How, how much should I do? Um, how certain do I need to be? I, I'm a big believer, and I said this to a, um, a young client of mine who's um, she's buying her first place um, yesterday, and she's exhausted because a lot of buyers are. They've been trying and they've been frustrated, and there's low stock, what Emily was talking about before. But it should be hard, and it you, you can miraculously this perfect property could come on. It's a quality asset, and you could get the deal done. But that's unlikely. You're more likely to be missing out, trawling, saying no to 95% of the properties. But the thing is, once it's done, it's done. You know, um, you've, so it's hard to buy. It's easy to sell. Because when you get a quality asset, you know, you're getting letterbox drops after about a week from other agents saying, hang on a sec, do you want to sell? Do you want to sell? Do you want a market appraisal? Um, because they know if that your property ever comes online, it's easy to sell. So hard to buy, easy to sell. And if something is easy to buy, like Emily says, it's cheap, it will potentially be hard to sell because the reason it's cheap is the person's struggling to sell it. So they're feeling the pain in the future. You should feel the pain at the start. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so you're doing all the right things, obviously educating yourself on all these things, but it's hard to buy. It's not going to mm. be an enjoyable experience. Yep. Yes, you can get help with people like Emily and local specialist buyers agents we're massive fans of, but uh, and they will do it, but that, it's not like their job's easy. They're, they're doing a lot of the hard yards for you. Um, and so it's, it's, uh, it's a painful experience, but the rewards come many years down the line by actually all that effort. Delayed gratification here, it sounds like. Yeah. <laughs> Very much so. It's, yeah, a lot of buyers do feel deflated in the process or, yeah, frustrated. And there's a lot of hours that go into it, but there kind of needs to be because at the end of the day, it's your home. So, yes, there's resources to have assistance, you know, such as a buyer's advocate, but there's only so much they can decide for you I guess so the element of the research phase and the inspecting phase and that sort of process has to be done by the buyer uh, and so even just getting a feel for it as you're starting to think about buying a property and refining down your suburbs and refining down the property type um, is always good and probably the more refined the better in some cases yes there'll be a few options to choose from but when it comes up you know that that's what you've been looking for and it's actually easier to take action on it um, than wondering if there's something better out there for you. Hmm. Absolutely. I mean, it's all those reference points in your mind that give you the confidence to go for it, right? Because yeah. what happens is you, you've been looking, you're ner everyone's nervous, right? Everyone's nervous of taking on a big debt and buying a property. It's, it's a big financial decision. And then even when the right property hits them in the face, they sometimes don't sort of snap it up because they haven't got that confidence. They haven't got all those reference points. They haven't seen a lot of enough properties, et cetera. So you do need to get educated because when that time is to make offers and, you know, go unconditional and to really put your foot down, um, if you don't at that point, that property goes and then you're back to square one looking again. And so, um, yeah, educating yourself, getting on the ground, looking at lots of properties, always a good idea. 
some great suggestions thanks both of you yeah yeah it's always was very very fortunate kate you and i we get to um speak to the experts like this um so once again if you're interested um you can hear more from uh chris at, at wellful and uh emily um it's emilywallace.com.au if i'm not mistaken um and um also available on uh, instagram so kate you've got plenty to go on this is going to be one of our most popular episodes i think from a couple of years ago was um the first home buying journey that i went on um maybe yours is going to come up soon so um as always, Kate, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Chris. And thanks, Emily. Thank you. Awesome, guys. Thanks. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Australian Finance Podcast, where our mission is to improve the financial futures of all Australians. If you'd like to learn more, create a free account at rusk.com.au forward slash account to download free episode workbooks, bonus resources, and take our amazing free personal finance courses. You can also join our online community by following the link in the description. If you enjoyed the show, what we'd love is for you to leave us a snappy review on iTunes. And you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Rask Australia. Kate and I are also on both of those channels. Finally, if you have any feedback, suggestions for episodes or guests to come on the show, or you just have a question for us, shoot us an email at podcast at rask.com.au.